You're listening to the Grace City Boston podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at gracecityboston.com or follow us on social media at Grace City Boston. Now, let's get to the sermon. Hey, good morning, good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing? <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate that. Hey, uh, my name's, if I don't know you, my name's Brian. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here at uh, Grace City, and so uh, good to be here. I, so I was gone like the last three weeks or so, and um, so the last week I, uh, I was doing a camp in Philly for middle school, high school students, and so I had to be like super pumped up, uh, full of energy. I, if you've ever been to camp, like when you were a teenager, I don't know if maybe you grew up doing those things or whatever. And uh, so I'm speaking at this camp. This has nothing to do with this morning, but I thought it was funny. So I'm sitting at lunch and I'm uh, uh, chopping it up with the kids. And so I we're just talking. And so I'm sitting here with these two really cool kids from Jersey, and uh, we're in Philly. It's where the camp's at. And this kid, he's going to be a sophomore in high school, and he looks at me and he goes. We were just kind of talking, and he actually was talking about his buddy who kept falling asleep during my sermon, but um, who I can see falling asleep. But he uh, he goes, man, the the words you use are too big. He's like, I don't understand them. And I was like, okay, the future's bright. And then I thought, and then he goes, maybe you could like mix in a few jokes or something, you know? And then he and then he levels up. Then he levels up. Like I'm a person with feelings. And then he levels up and he goes, I mean, there's. They're kind of boring, you know? <laughs> Anyways, all right, so uh, I went to the bathroom and cried. <clears throat> Do you know what I'm saying? I got up like a middle school kid. All right, so um, good to be back with adults. Uh, and uh, if you're here, you've never heard me teach, you're like, this is gonna bless me, I can't wait. Um, we, uh, so we're in the tail end of a series uh, called First to Last. We were actually gonna end the series last week, uh, but as we kind of were looking at the calendar and kind of looking at the series in general, uh, we really didn't feel like it was a, a good kind of stopping place uh, where we stopped. And so we really wanted to kind of end out this series looking at King David. And so um, in this series, kind of what we've been looking at, if you've not been here, basically we've been taking these Old Testament narratives and these Old Testament um, leaders, these kind of men and women, and we've essentially said that a lot of these kind of popular stories that we know about, that maybe if you grew up in church, you were taught, or maybe you've read kind of later in life, really all of these stories are just pointers to a better story. They're pointers actually to Jesus. And so if you look at Adam, you can look at Adam's story in Genesis and essentially land at that Jesus was a better Adam. You can look at Abraham's story. You can see his calling on his life. You can see the obedience in the calling, but you're still gonna land at Jesus was a better Abraham. Jesus was a better Joseph. He was a better Isaac. Um, all of these Old Testament stories, uh, B.B. Warfield was an um, Old Testament uh, theologian. He said the Old Testament is like a dark room, a dimly, lit, a dimly kind of lit room. And he says the New Testament is like someone opening the windows. That you can begin to see the kind of grander picture of the room because you've opened the windows. That's what the New Testament does. And so every week we've looked at these Old Testament stories and narratives as really just pointers to um, the person, the work, and the life of Jesus. Now, David, um, which is who we're looking at this morning, uh, there's actually, um, uh, other than Jesus, the Bible talks uh, about no one else more than David. We have more content and, and uh, narrative about David 
than we do uh, any other individual. Now, what that tells us is that the Bible thinks David's story is important. And that if we don't know David's story, we don't understand his narrative, we don't understand the, the arc of his life, then we won't fully understand the promises of the Bible. We won't fully kind of understand the arc of the Christian story without knowing David's story. And so this morning, we're going to kind of dive into that. Now, as I said, his, his um, catalog is pretty extensive, so we won't be able to uh, get to all of it. Um, but it's, it's worth noting that in the New Testament, we see Jesus over and over and over again. He's actually called the son of David, not the son of Abraham or the son of Moses, but the son of David. Jesus, the Messiah, is actually referred to as the son of David. Now, what does that mean? What clues does it give us about um, David and about Jesus? Well, essentially, it means this. Uh, it means more than just the fact that Jesus is a descendant of David. It essentially means that David, when David the king is at his best, and that's the story that we're going to look at. He's not always at his best. But when he's at his best, which is the story that we're looking at, we're essentially getting a glimpse into the heart of our king, the king, the, the God in heaven king, that when he is doing it the right way, and when he's at his best, we're seeing the heart and the character of the God that we serve, that we love, that we follow. This is why Jesus is actually called the son of um, David. So we, we, again, won't be able to cover everything, but, but let me just kind of play a little bit of a catch up here um, to get to where we need to be. So if you don't know much about David's story, David um, is essentially uh, um, the kind of the runt of the litter in his family. He's the, the youngest son, uh, the, the like youngest kid, any younger, the youngest siblings, right? Yeah, we're awesome. And so he's kind of that guy. He's, he's overlooked. He um, doesn't, uh, doesn't naturally kind of carry uh, a ton of stature, at least in his family. Um, and, and we see that God calls David and anoints David as king. He sends a prophet to find David, and he says to him, you're gonna be the new king. Now, one of the things that's interesting, I think this is even a pointer to the fact that, that David is a pointer to Jesus, is that David is actually anointed king. He's made king by God, but doesn't actually take the throne for years and years after that. There's like a whole process that's gonna happen before David even take, rightfully takes the throne, although he is, uh, although he is the king. We see another story where David, this is probably one of the, the more popular stories, where David kills a, a Philistine giant named Goliath. And through this particular story, uh, David, his kind of acclaim uh, grows even greater. He gains the attention of Saul, who is the current, the, the first king of the nation of Israel. And Saul's like, who is that guy? He, he kind of gets in close and, and he has this kind of recognition by Saul and by Saul's family that the hand of God is on David. So much so that eventually it grows into a thing where Saul hates David. Uh, he wants David to, um, to die. He actually is seeking to murder uh, David. And we'll get into some of that as we kind of progress in the story. Now, here's the other thing that we know about David. Um, this is why Jesus is a better David. Uh, David is a deeply, deeply flawed individual. And we see this week after week after week. I mean, one of the things that makes David's story really famous um, is uh, David's a king. 
David observes uh, another man's wife, decides that he wants to uh, sleep with her. And so David, uh, this, the story of David and Bathsheba, if you're familiar with it, um, is a story of, of deep wickedness. David uh, rapes Bathsheba. There's no way around that. Like a man in authority who sends armed guards to get a woman to sleep with him is rape in any culture that you find yourself in. And so he rapes her, uses his power and his authority over her. And then in order to cover up the rape, he then sends her husband back, hoping she sleeps with him, but he doesn't do that. He's a man of honor and then sends him to the front line. So then he goes from a rapist to a murderer. Like this is David's um, lowest, most wicked part of his story. We have to be honest with that. Like we can't recognize David as an individual um, who is a pointer to Jesus without seeing that. That's why he's not. Even in that story, we can't get into all of it, but even in that story, what you're going to see if you go back and read that story is you're going to see both the justice of God and the grace of God in that story. David's going to pay dearly for his wickedness and his rebellion. God cares for Bathsheba, cares for um, her family, and what happens in that moment, God will, there is a, a reckoning that happens um, in that moment because God is a God of justice. But we're also gonna see in that story, if you go back and read it, that God's a God of grace, that he doesn't leave his presence from David. He, he continues to stay with David in the midst of all these types of, of things. We're seeing all of these gospel pointers. So let's look at the story this morning. So if you have a Bible, uh, 2 Samuel chapter nine is where we're gonna be at um, this morning. We're gonna answer three questions essentially. Here's the three questions that we're looking at. We're gonna look at what did David do in this particular story? Again, this is David at his best. We're gonna look at what he did. We're gonna look at who he directed the action towards. And then finally, we're gonna look at why he did it. So what, what was it that David did? Who did he direct what he did towards? And then why in the world does David do this? Like if he's a pointer to Jesus, uh, why did he do this? All right, Second Samuel chapter nine. Let me pray for us and we'll dive into our scripture. God, thank you um, for, God, thank you for your consistency and your faithfulness. Um, thank you that you give us the scriptures to know you, to, to understand how to love you, to, to understand who we are and, and how we operate and, and what we look like, God. And so we just ask for your help this morning. Uh, we ask for your help from the Holy Spirit, uh, that the Holy Spirit would enlighten the areas of the scripture that, that we need to see um, that would enlighten our minds and our hearts, uh, perhaps in places where we're walking in darkness. Um, God, would you do that this morning? We, we want to, to know you more deeply. Um, we want to understand you more fully. We want to see the kingdom of God for what it is um, and experience the change that comes along with that, God. And so we just ask of that uh, this morning from you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so first thing, what did David do? Uh, so if you're looking in your scriptures, you'll, you'll notice kind of three places where uh, David is going to essentially repeat himself. So in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, uh, this is what David said. And Max read the scripture for us earlier. David says this. David asked, this sets it up. David asked, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul, this was the first king of Israel, that I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Okay, so that's verse one. He says, I want to show kindness. Second Samuel 9, verse three, we see it again. It says, so the king asked, David, is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God 
two. Okay, so that's the second time. And then the third time in 2 Samuel 9, verse seven, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Okay, so three moments here in just a, a span of nine verses, David says, here's the setup. He says, I want to show kindness to someone that falls into the, the family lineage of, of, of David or of Saul. I want to show that. Now, the Hebrew word for kindness here, that's actually not a great translation of that word. It's a bit of a weak translation. That word is actually, because it's a very important Hebrew word, and it's actually translated steadfast love or even covenant love. Steadfast love or covenant love. So kindness is fine, but it kind of loses the, the weight of, of what the, the scripture is actually telling us in this moment. What David is looking to do in this moment is to extend, I want you to hear this, is to extend covenant love to someone in Saul's family. I want to extend covenant love to someone in Saul's family. Now, let's think about this idea of covenant love. Now, um, Let's, so let's think about our relationship. Let's think about our consumer relationship, right? So say that we all uh, left this place. We went down to Urban Outfitters and we were gonna get a crop top and some Birkenstocks. They have lots of those there. And say we went down there and how does that, how does that relationship work? I'm trying to be more funny based on my, my man's, <laughs> my man's, okay. So um, say so we went down there and um, so we went down there and we said, hey, I'm gonna give you I have monetary things, right? A card or money or whatever, crypto. And I'm gonna give you these things. I'm on fire this morning. I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you this. And in return, I want you to give me some goods. So I want you to give me like goods or I want to give you like cert, right? So if I went to the Shake Shack and, and I came in there, I would need to give you something. And in return, you're gonna give me a delicious burger, right? This is how um, our relationships work. So in a consumer relationship, I'm always going to place my needs above the relationship. If I go to the Shake Shack and I give you something and I get the burger in return, it's raw and gross and, and nasty, I'm then going to say, hey, I'm going somewhere else because you are not meeting my needs, therefore I'm ending my relationship with you. Are we following along? In a covenant relationship, what is a covenant relationship? So if that is a consumer relationship, a covenant relationship is I'm going to sacrifice my needs to stay in the relationship. Consumer relationship, I'm gonna sacrifice the relationship to meet my needs. Covenant relationship, I'm going to sacrifice my needs to stay into the relationship. This is what um, David is essentially looking to do. The covenant relationship is, is kind of the opposite of how we tend to um, think about our consumer uh, relationship, You'll, we'll see in a bit, um, what David is looking for is he's looking for a descendant of Saul, and, and, and we'll get there in a second, but the thing I want you to grasp is the reason that he's doing this is because of a promise that he made years and years and years ago. And no one is expecting David to keep this covenant uh, love promise to any of the descendants of Jonathan. No one. 
No one is expecting um, David to do that. It's actually not to his advantage to extend covenant love to Mephibosheth. It's actually not to his advantage, but he's actually saying, I'm going to sacrifice, this is covenant love, I'm going to sacrifice, David's like, I'm going to sacrifice my needs that we'll see in a second to maintain and to keep the relationship. He's saying, I want my relationships to be marked by covenant love. Now, this is why we say that David is a pointer to the way of Jesus, that the way that we think about relationships and consider relationships is that we think about it as a people who commit ourselves to others. Now, here's what we see in kind of in a cultural moment that we exist in. We have taken the world, culture, unfortunately the church, those inside the church, we've taken the consumer mindset, this consumer kind of relational mindset, this trade of, of, of monetary value for goods, and we've transferred that over into our relationships. And we've said to people, I will commit myself to you as long as you are meeting my needs. Haven't we? Like, we, we've essentially said, think about it this way. I'm going to build a relationship strategically with this individual because I know that this individual will help me meet my needs. I have aspirations. Therefore, that individual can help me reach my aspirations. And so I'm going to commit myself to them as long as they continue to meet my needs. Haven't we done this? I'm with you as long as you're meeting my needs. This is not the way of Jesus. It, it's not. This is not the way it works. Some of us have transferred that kind of relationship onto neighbors, onto coworkers, onto whoever, onto spouses. We've even transferred that type of mentality onto our relationship with God. Have we not? I will identify and follow Jesus as long as it's advantageous for me. Now, the good news about being in Boston is there's nothing advantageous about being a follower of Christ in Boston, right? There's no like, I, as a pastor in Boston, I get no like cultural like, dude, that's so awesome. I love what you're doing. You're reaching the city for the way of Jesus. I think you guys are so engaging and loving. Like, I, there's actually none of that, right? It's kind of helpful being in a city that we live in. But nevertheless, we respond to God by saying to him, in a lot of ways, I'll stay with you as long as you meet my needs, whatever those perceived needs are. Not I'm, I'm with you, I'm coveted, I'm, I'm with you, primarily based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus but I'm with you as long as you're meeting my needs. And so David is showing us in this moment, he's saying to us that the, the type of love that we're to respond towards one another is covenant love. This is the way of Jesus, that I'm with you and connected with you no matter what. It, isn't that the type of community that you want to be a part of? That, that's the type of church I want to be a part of, where, where I know that, that people or have my back, they're connected with me. I mean, like generally, um, our, our kind of generation in general, or in, even in our cultural moment, we, we just struggle in general with just commitment across the board, don't we? Like that's just, like, that, that's just the, the reality of the situation. We do um, 
so we uh, we have house churches that are, they'll kick back up. So this is like our small group format if, if you're new to our church. And so we have house churches that happen all throughout the week, um, starting back in a few weeks. And so we'll be talking to, I'll talk to people about house churches or whatever, getting connected. And it's a ton of work to like do that, right? I mean, you got to essentially commit yourself to, to like after work or whatever, after school, whatever you're doing, you you know, you got to put on clothes or whatever. And so uh, it's a ton of work to actually like show up to someone's house. And, and so I'm frequently talking with people. And it's just kind of one of those things, like we're kind of in this place in life now where it's like, I don't know, do I want to like commit every Wednesday to be in there? Like, what if something more interesting comes on? Do you know what I mean? Like, what if I have another opportunity that like shows up and then I've kind of said yes to this and now I'm going to be like, I don't know if I want to commit to this community because this thing's a little more interesting. That's kind of, right? We just have, in general, we struggle with this type of, uh, type of covenantal love towards one another where we say, no, I, I am committed to you. I'm, I'm, I'm here with you, like I'm for you. This is the type of community that Jesus is seeking to call us into. It's a community with a characteristic of, um, a characteristic of covenantal uh, love. You see, covenant love, it always limits you. It, it always limits your freedom, doesn't it? Doesn't covenant love limit you? Like I made a, a covenant love um, obligation to my wife. That limits me. When it doesn't limit one of the spouses, it creates what? Heartache, brokenness. Some of you are a product of that, your household. So that covenant love, it, it limits me. It makes me create boundaries. It makes me think about the way that I um, spend our resources or whatever that we have. It makes my wife in the, in the same boundaries. and re- Like we've covenant, it limits our freedom. This is what covenantal love does. I can't think though of anything more powerful in our kind of cultural moment than covenantal love. What would it say to the world around us to say, hey, we don't base our relationships with one another based on whether we're primarily meeting the needs of one another. We base our relationships with one another based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We're committed to one another. Because I'm going to be honest with you. There are moments that if you are just in a relationship with me, based on whether I'm meeting your needs or not, there are going to be moments in all of our lives where I am or you are going to need to be carried, you will not be able to meet the needs of someone else. But those are mo- all of us have those moments where it's like, I, in this moment, need a community that will carry me. I'm at my wit's end. My family member is dying. I've lost my job. The relationship has ended. The bank account is empty. Everything that I thought was going to equate to worth and value is gone, and I need you to carry me. See that? that? This is covenantal love. And so David is saying, find someone in the line of Jonathan, because I've made a promise, that I can show covenantal love to. I don't need them. David's king. He doesn't, Mephibosheth's not gonna meet any of David's needs. It's primarily about showing him this type of covenantal love. Tim Keller says it this way. Um, He says, as scary as covenantal love is, 
because you limit your options and you lose your freedom. There's nothing more liberating or more freeing than being in covenantal relationships. There's nothing more liberating than knowing you have a circle of friends who would do anything for you and who you can count on. You see, covenantal relationships and covenantal love is limiting while at the same time freeing. To say, I have people, I have a community, a community of Christ followers that have my back, that I can turn to, that I need, that, that I need. In, in a city, in Boston, um, the, the value of having a community of followers of Christ who are saying, I've got your back no matter what, it is like one of the most valuable things that you can have here. I can remember um, I was having a phone call with someone and, and some stuff was, like I was struggling with some stuff and, and trying to figure some stuff out. And this, um, the guy I was on the phone with, he's a, a member of our congregation, our church. And, uh, and so we're talking and, and I'm just kind of like, getting to that like rambling state. You know what I mean? Like when you get in a conversation, you're just like, you're rambling because of your anxiety. Just me? Okay, great. And I, so he, he just, and then finally he goes, hey, Brian, he's like, I've got your back. And that's all I needed. He's like, I, he said, I've got your back. Like, don't worry, I have your back. This is covenantal relationship. This is, what, this is why David is showing this marker for us. Okay, second thing. So the first thing that he does, he shows covenantal love. Who does he show covenantal love to? Look back at the story. Verse six, this interaction with Mephibosheth is super fascinating. So first of all, we're told what? We're told that Mephibosheth in verse six, it says that he bowed down to pay honor to David. Literally, the Hebrew says that he fell prostrate, that he threw himself on the floor before uh, David. David actually has to say to him in verse seven, uh, don't be afraid. Now, why uh, does David do that? Well, he does that probably because he's trembling, probably because he's terrified. Uh, you'll notice in verse eight, Mephibosheth says this about himself. He says, what is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? Now, I've been around some people who are self-deprecating. This is at like a new level of self-deprecation. And he says, what, what would you have to, why, why are you trying to be in a relationship with a dead dog with with me. Now, why is he terrified? Why is he afraid? Well, he's being brought into the presence of King David. And anyone who knows anything about life, anything about political life, anything about um, uh, the way life works in the, the monarch knows that or expects that David is going to kill Mephibosheth. This is how, um, this is how it, monarchs would work. I'm, I'm, so I'm reading a book right now. Uh, well, it's an audible so I need to be transparent. Um, it's called Saints and Bullies. It's an honest look at Christian, the good and bad of the Christian faith. And uh, one of the things that becomes really interesting in this book is he kind of talks about this transfer of power. And he essentially says that when one monarch comes in, what do they do? They do what? They destroy the old monarch. We actually, not only do we um, see this in ancient Near Eastern history, but we also see it in 1 Kings 15, 1 Kings 16, 2 Kings 10, we see that when this transfer of power happens, when a new regime comes into power, the new king is seeking to solidify his position. And the way that the king solidifies his position, it's, it's basically solidification through liquidation. I'm going to solidify my kingdom by liquidating the old kingdom. Any of those that are connected to that kingdom this is what everyone, everyone was expecting 
that David was going to do to Mephibosheth. It's why he's terrified. It's why he's on the ground. It's why he's afraid. Because he's thinking, my life is going to end. It's going to be over with. We actually see something like this similar happen um, in the beginning of David's reign. So Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. So he's from the tribe of Benjamin. That was the first king. David is from the tribe of Judah. And what happens when David takes over and Saul is gone is David uh, finally gets on the throne. And you have the tribe of Judah who comes around David and they're like, hey, we're for you. You're the king now. You've been anointed. We're rallying point. While at the same time, there's some from the tribe of Benjamin who find a descendant of Saul. And they're like, no, you're the king. You're the rightful heir because this is how monarchs work. And so we're going to anoint you king. And at the very beginning of the king, of, of David's kingship is actually a civil war that David actually has to fight and work through where he, representing his tribe, has to destroy those representing the tribe of Benjamin. This, is just, this was the expectation. This is what everyone was essentially uh, going to say um, and, and what was their expectation. You see, Mephibosheth, so if he shows covenant love in the first one, who is he showing it to? Mephibosheth, for all intents and purposes, is an enemy to David. David, in this narrative, is showing enemy love. Like it is actually to his advantage to kill Mephibosheth. Like if, if David wants to feel secure, if he wants to feel politically safe, he needs to hunt down every descendant of Saul and kill them. You want to solidify your monarch and your position as a king, you kill the descendants of Saul. And yet we have in this story, David, this pointer to Jesus, showing enemy love. Now, he not only doesn't kill him, but look at the text. Look at verse 7. It's incredible. He says, I will restore, talking to Mephibosheth, he says, I will restore to you all of your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. Skip down to verse 9. It says, in the king summoned Saul's attendant, Ziba, and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to work the ground for him. You're to bring in the crops so that your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, so he's talking about Mephibosheth's family. He says, his master's grandson is always to eat at my table. Now, this is deep, deep enemy love. So he says, Mephibosheth, I want you, I want you to see this gospel picture. He says, I want you to come to my table. I'm inviting you to the king's table to eat. As long as you are alive, Mephibosheth, you are welcomed at the king's table. Do you see that? And then, not only does he not kill Mephibosheth, not only does he not uh, just invite Mephibosheth to his table, but he says to Mephibosheth, I'm restoring your inheritance. You're welcome in my presence, not going to kill you. You're welcome at my table, and I am giving you an inheritance. 
Do we see that? Do you see how David is a pointer to the way of Jesus? He's a pointer, like this is the gospel playing itself out uh, right in front of us. The Bible in Romans chapter five, verse 10, uh, the Bible actually says in our pre-Christian state, our pre, our, the state we, that we're in before we um, follow Jesus, the, the Bible says in Romans 5, 10, says that while we were enemies, this is our reality. We are enemies to God. It says, but while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, we're brought into relationship with God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? Paul also says, Romans chapter three, he says, there's no one righteous, no one seeks God, no one's seeking God. And then Jesus in John chapter six, verse 44, says, no one can come to me unless the Father has sent me, draws him. Now catch this, hang in here with me. What did David do? David did what? He went after Mephibosheth. He drew Mephibosheth in. Like he said, no, I am committed, David is saying, I am committed to showing covenantal love to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth, get in here. I need to show you love. Some would say, you're my enemy, but I am showing you enemy love. Now we'll look at, we'll look at why in a second, because that's really important, but I just wanna hang in there that this is what the Bible is teaching us or showing us. Not only have we received enemy love by God the Father, while we were still enemies, God loves us and cares for us. But Jesus also talks about love for enemy. In Matthew chapter five, uh, I would say the greatest set of teachings that exists in the history of literary work is the Sermon on the Mount. So this is Matthew five, six, and seven. Like if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it is, it is mind-blowing. Like it's unbelievably mind-blowing. Even those who don't identify as followers of Christ read the Sermon on the Mount and they're like, this teaching is ridiculous. So in Matthew 5, verse 43, listen to what Jesus says. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you, so then he's gonna say why we should do that. Why are we to show enemy love? He says, so that you may be children of your father in heaven for as he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So he says, children of the father in heaven are those who show enemy love. This is the way of Jesus. Now, just as a, just as a side note, um, enemy love does not mean you make it easy for them to sin against you. Like that, that's not enemy love, right? It's not loving to make it easy for someone to sin. So if someone is out to get you, you, you don't make it easy for them to sin against you. That, that's, that's not, you're not loving them that way. You don't make it easy for them. That's helping them sin. It's also could mean that you are to oppose them or to confront them, right? Because their particular actions, if you don't, it might be unloving to people around you. Enemy love is not love that just rolls over. There's wisdom in enemy love. But it just simply means that when we're looking at those who we would consider our enemies or those that we're opposed to, we never deal with them just simply to hurt them or to humiliate them. 
or to bring them down because we want vengeance. That is not the way of Jesus. I, I, I think in our kind of day and time, right? Because here's what David is doing. David is inviting um, a political opponent to sit at his table. He's inviting a tribal opponent to sit at his table. This is what we're seeing in the, in the story. Like, let's think about just our kind of cultural moment that we have here, right? Like we live in one of the most kind of um, intense kind of cultural relational moments that I can think of where it's like, listen, if you're on the other side of the aisle from me, if your background's different from me, if you have some kind of different political view, you don't exactly line up with my ideological alignment, then I'm going to maybe not call you an enemy, but I'm going to treat you as an enemy, right? We would never call one another enemies because we're too good for that. But we will destroy your reputation. The way of Jesus is the way of enemy love. It's to say, hey, we aren't going to align all the time, but I still love you. I'm still committed to you. I'm, I'm still for you, although I don't line up in this particular way. This is the church. This is how the world sees the church, is when we're doing this. David, in this moment, is showing the character and the heart of God perfectly in this moment. Perfectly in this moment. All right, final thing. So what, what did he do? He showed covenantal love. Who did he show it to? He showed it to one who would be considered his enemy. Third thing, why did David show covenant love to Mephibosheth? What motivated, was David just like a good dude? Like what motivated him to risk his kingdom in order to do this? We'll look back at verse seven. This is beautiful. Verse seven, David says, don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Now, a quick backstory. Um, God sends Samuel to anoint David, the prophet Samuel to anoint David, and he anoints David as king over Saul. Well, this makes Saul rightly furious. Saul's upset about this. The reason that Saul's upset is he wants the kingdom and he wants his son, Jonathan, to inherit the kingdom. Jonathan is going to be the one who's rightfully going to be the king. Jonathan himself, of course, has even more incentive to see David die because he's looking at the throne thinking, that's actually my throne. Like Saul is the king. And the plan was that I take the throne after my father. That is the order. He could rightfully be said to go after David for that. But the problem is, is that David and Jonathan become what? Friends. They become friends. Jonathan actually perceives God's anointing on David. He says, okay, this man has been anointed uh, by God. Jonathan loved David. We see in 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20, they actually make a, a covenant of friendship. There's actually even one place uh, where Jonathan is swearing his love and loyalty to David. And he essentially says to David, hey, I'm gonna protect you from my father the best that I can. So I'm going to be loyal to my dad, Saul, while at the same time, I'm going to seek to protect you from him killing you. And then the scriptures tell us that he removes his robe and he takes off his sword. And in this moment, what Jonathan is doing is he's saying to David, 
I'm giving up my throne. I'm not coming for it. I'm, I'm, I'm willingly laying this down. See, David is showing covenantal love to Mephibosheth, not because Mephibosheth, don't miss this, not because Mephibosheth deserved it, but because David had a friend who showed him covenantal love, and now Mephibosheth is reaping the benefits of the life and the love and ultimately the death of Jonathan. Do you see that? Like this is what's happening. David had a friend who loved him covenantally. He had a friend who put himself in harm's way, who lost his throne so that David could ascend the throne. This was Jonathan. Jonathan or David was actually motivated to love based on his friend's love and sacrifice. Now here's the thing. David had a friend who lost an earthly throne. We have a friend, the scripture says, who left a heavenly throne. Like Jesus actually says in the scriptures, he says, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I call you friends. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and to bear fruit. And then he says, greater love has no one than this, that he who lay down his life for his friends. And then he says, therefore, love one another. See, we are, this is the gospel, right? We are welcomed to the table of God the Father, God in heaven, not because of our worth or ability or or what we bring to the relationship, right? If anything, all we bring to the relationship in a lot of ways is our rebellion that was necessary for Jesus. That's what we're bringing. But we're invited to the king's table. We're given, the scriptures say, an inheritance. Uh, We're given inheritance. Why? Because Jesus did what? Left his throne, sacrificed himself, took on death. See that gospel pointer? Like we're in the presence and considered a people of God, considered brothers and sisters of God because of Jesus. This is, this is the work. Jesus, like Jonathan in so many ways, in this kind of turn of the story, is really now the pointer to Jesus. This is the God we serve. We've been shown in this story, we're like, we are Mephibosheth. You and I have been invited to the table of God in heaven to share forever in his presence, to receive the benefits of sons and daughters this morning. And so maybe this morning, um, maybe you're here this morning, and I'm going to give you just a little bit of space, and then we're going to do the bread and cup, but um, maybe you're here this morning, and maybe for you this morning, you just need to respond with gratitude to God. Like maybe just in a second, you just need to say to God, man, I thank you. Like you, I'm recognizing, I've seen that. You're showing me enemy love. You've, you've, you've made a covenant with me through Jesus. Thank you for that. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're like, oh gosh, man, I've actually organized my relationships um, around the way that I've organized my consumer relationships. And I can't think of a relationship around me that I did not pick that was primarily about meeting my needs, helping me in some type of way. 
And, and you've, maybe you're like, man, I've been saying no to other relationships because I perceive that they can't help me get where I need to be, career-wise or society-wise. And maybe this morning you just need to repent. You just need to say to God, hey, God, I'm, I want to be open-handed in my relationships. Like I want, I want to look like Jesus. I want to love and care for people all over the spectrum, whether they help me, whether I perceive that they can help me or not, because all people can help you, whether I perceive if they can help me or not. I want to be open-handed in my relationships.